Man, I love hearing the stories from families in our church and what they've experienced in life groups and in connections. And we do say life groups are the secret sauce of Radiate because we believe, um, you know, it's summertime and, and we're all going different places. But as the church grows, we say it like this, we want to, as the church gets bigger, we want to get smaller. And what we mean by that is we want to meet in smaller groups uh, so that we can connect together. Uh, you're not going to get to know everybody on a Sunday morning. You can get to know a few people. Um, but you can get to know life with people in a group. You pray together, you celebrate together, you cry together. Um, man, it's just life, and, and I love it. And those groups, they merge into life to where you begin to do life together. For instance, there's a guy, he, he went and worked out with me yesterday at the gym, and, and our relationship started in life group form. And, and we begin to know each other and get to know each other, and, and, and now we just do life together. And so it's just these moments where you get to know people, and you know what they're about, and you know who they are. And I encourage you to be a part of it. On your seat is a card, and it's got all those summer life groups listed there. Man, I encourage you, get in a life group this summer. I know you're going to be on vacation. Uh, a, a lot of you are online today because you're already on vacation, and I love that. I, I think we all need time away and time with family and all that stuff. Thank you for taking us to the beach with us, with you. I've been wanting to go to the beach so far this week, so I appreciate that. Um, I'm okay not getting in the water, though. That sticky, sandy feeling is terrible for me. And, um, but no, uh, and, and I know you'll be on vacation, but man, be a part of a group where when you get home and you're around, you're in a group. You're with some people that you can do life with. Can I tell you something? You need people that are going to hold you up whenever you can't hold yourself up. But you also need people that can hold you up while you can hold yourself up and that can celebrate with you. And so we want to be a part of that. Brandon and Heather are a special group, uh, are a special couple in our Florence campus. We love them dearly. They're, they're, they serve in our campus. They're a part of life groups. They're amazing out there. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about our Florence campus real quick uh, and then tell you something that's going on. So about uh, four years ago, five years ago or so, Justin and Amber Graham... Uh, from the Florence area, where they started driving uh, an hour one way just to come and be a part of the services here in Columbia. God started doing some amazing things in their lives and in their family. They love the atmosphere. They loved you. They love all of it. And so after a couple of years of that and seeing what God had done in their life, we were like, hey, why don't you start a life group? Why don't you start a life group every other Sunday night in Florence like, you can watch the message and then have conversation about it afterwards while you're eating sausage dip and tortilla chips. Come on, somebody, praise God. All that good stuff and all this. And so they did. They called it Active Faith. They grew that group. Uh, amazing things were taking place. People were getting saved in their living room. Like, just, it was fun, man. It was great. We'd go up there and hang out with them every now and then. COVID hit, and just like it did everything, it kind of changed the dynamic of everything. And so they, after COVID uh, just kind of passed by and normality came back to life a little bit, they restarted the group, grew it back, and we were like, hey, let's try something different. What if we got you a place off-site, uh, uh, away from your house, that you could hold more people, and y'all actually started streaming in Sunday morning services. And so we'll treat it like a, a micro-campus. In the sense that, let's see what happens. So we found them, a honestly, a double-wide office trailer. Uh, two of them uh, behind a business. One is the auditorium, and one is for the kids, where they try to divide up the ages. And they do extremely well loving our kids in that area. And, um, man, they go in there, they started that. And, uh, wow, you know, we sent Elliot down there to lead worship. And now LJ and... Mark and Elliot and Pastor Chris all alternate leading worship out there. It's amazing to see what happens. And they've grown, man. They're packing the place out there at their capacity every week. They're in their auditorium capacity and definitely in their kids' capacity. And we've been praying, hey, God, what do you want us to do next? What, what's next? How do we create more room? Because if you've been around Radiate long, you know we're all about creating capacity. We never want to cap anything. And so our thing is, is hey, God, you open the door. And we'll always walk through it, create capacity. And I am so excited to let you know today that we have just finalized a lease on a brand new facility, Next Step facility for our Florence campus. Come on. I am so pumped. It's in a storefront on a main road on West Palmetto Street right there in Florence. 
Um, it's, um, it will double their space and give them, double their auditorium space and give them kids' classrooms for the first time in the existence of that campus. I'm so excited. Uh, I love to see what God's going to do there. I really do believe it's going to be amazing what's going to take place. Um, and we begin renovations in July. And so uh, just pray about like, hey, do you want to help us paint? Do you want to give towards something? What does that look like? Because in our goal, and goals are flexible if they have to be, um, but our goal is at the beginning of August that we will have our first service in our next step facility in Florence. Come on, make some noise in the room, man. Here, I didn't say this in the first service, and I should have. Um, the way this came about is Megan and I were getting coffee at Starbucks in Florence. Shocker, I know, right? If you know us at all, you know that that's not a shock at all. And we were in there, and somebody walked up to us, and we're like, hey, this facility's about to come open. Would you be interested? And we were like, yeah. And so two months later, they got back in touch with us, and now it's led to this. And I love when God opens an opportunity more than I have to force the door open, because here's the reality. God knows if there's a crack in the door, I'm going to go flying through it like the Kool-Aid man if I have to. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, So God, my whole thing is, God, you better lock that thing, deadbolt it, and make sure it ain't coming open. And he does. And so when he opens the door, I love it. And here's a little teaser. Columbia, you might want to pay attention over the next few weeks uh, there might be some good news right around the corner for you as well. So I'm really, really excited about what's happening at Radiate. Can we give God some praise? Come on, somebody. Y'all better wake up this morning. It's going to be good. So we're going to jump into week four of season one, episode four, season one of Binge, the Bible. We've been in this thing. The whole goal, as you know, is not just to get through the Bible, but to get the Bible through us. And, uh, man, I love it. I love it. Oh, I want to celebrate one more thing. One more thing. Can I celebrate one more thing? And then we're going in. Uh, I want to celebrate one more thing. Uh, there's a camp that happens every year in our community. And um, several of our kids were at this camp this year. And, uh, man, they had 19 kids except Christ this past week at that camp. But watch this. You and your generosity... This is the power of generosity right here. You and your generosity provided 75 kids with brand new Bibles at that camp just this week. I thought that'd be a louder clap than that, but we'll let it go. So we want to jump in, and here's what we've been doing. Week one was all about the validity of the Bible. Why should we trust by water? We believe the Bible. Why is it important? We looked at all that. Week two, I want to give a quick recap. We looked at the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis means first, or creation, or beginning, right? And Genesis can really be broken down into three sections, creation, covenant, and captivity. And each of those reminds us that God is first, God doesn't lie, and God is good. And so as you read Genesis and as you study Genesis, my hope and my prayer is that we realize these three things in our life are real for us today. Because here's the reality about the Bible. We talk about this every week. It wasn't written to you, but it was written for you. And I don't know about you, but I could be reminded that sometimes, hey, man, you need to put God first. God's first, not anything else. God don't lie. That promise that he gave you years ago that you're waiting on to come happen, God don't lie. It's going to happen. If he promised it, it's going to happen. And God is good. No matter how bad life can seem, no matter how frustrating it can be, God is always good. And then we jumped into Exodus last week. And there's four sections of Exodus. The Israelites are leaving Egypt, which reminds us that God loves you too much to leave you there. Where is there? I don't know. Wherever you're enslaved. Wherever you're enslaved, whatever captivity you're in, God loves you right in that stuff, but he's not going to leave you there. If you're there, if you continue to be there years after giving your life to Christ, it's by your choice, not his. God loves you too much to leave you there. That's a word for somebody. And then they, after they leave Egypt, they're heading to Mount Sinai, they're in the wilderness, they're walking, and it reminded us to be grateful for God's blessings. It's hard to take for granted what you're grateful for. And my challenge was, go home and create a habit of thanking God for things that you have. God, thank you for my car. God, thank you for my church. God, thank you for my spouse and my kids and my friends and my life group. Whatever it is, it's hard to take for granted what you're grateful for. And then as they head to Mount Sinai, they get to Mount Sinai. My, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. Why does he go on Mount Sinai? Because he's to meet with? He's meeting with God. Why is he meeting with God? Because any godly leader, their number one priority is to get word from God, not opinions from people. 
And so he's on the Mount Sinai by himself in the presence of God, finding what God wants for the, the first Pentecostal church of Israel. That's not the real name. I had somebody walk up to me last week and go, I'm glad you said that because I was starting to wonder. It's not the real name. I made that up. I was just playing. And on Mount Sinai, and here's what it reminded us after he gets the Ten Commandments and all this stuff. God wants all of us, heart, soul, mind, and strength. God wants all of us. Everything you have to give, God wants that. And then we move into the golden calf. Remember, they form the golden calf, and, and they, give, they, give, um, they give Aaron the gold, and they form the calf. And what does Aaron say? Moses is like, what are you doing? And Aaron goes, I don't know. They gave me the gold. I threw it in the fire. And this happened. This popped out. That's literally Aaron's response. Y'all, it trips me out every single time. So we get to the golden calf. They're worshiping their own God. They get to the tabernacle. They built the tabernacle. And it's a reminder that God wants to dwell with us. And so we ended uh, Exodus last week. Um, that they were excited about this part, the building of the tabernacle. They were pumped about the tabernacle. They were pumped about what was taking place. In fact, they were so excited to create more room for more people to dwell with God. They were so excited to create a place for God to come and be with them that the Bible in Exodus says that they began sacrificially giving all that they had. And they gave so much that God goes, hold up. We don't have any use for it, nor anywhere to store it. All the self-storage places are full. So hold on for the next building phase. I love that, man, because they were like, whatever it takes to build a place where people can meet with God, I want to be a part of that. I want to give to that. I want to paint that. I want to build that. I want to give to that. I want to be a part of that. It reminds me a little bit of the Florence campus, which that wasn't planned, but I'm glad it was announced today. Because I, I know in my life, I want to be a part, whatever that looks like, of creating a place where more people can come to know God. Where more people's lives, because here's what I know. Over the past year of that campus, we've grown tremendously, but not only numerically, we've seen people give their lives to the Lord, we've seen families completely shifted and changed, we've seen divorced people walk back in and they're working their marriage out, God's doing something, we're watching kids grow, get baptized, it's amazing what's taking place there, and I want to be a part of creating more of that. Whatever that looks like. And that's where they were in the tabernacle. That's where they were with that. And so we get to it, and after the tabernacle was built, we run up on this scripture in Exodus chapter 40 and verses 34 and 35. And it says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. Remember, back, going back a minute, when the cloud was over the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, I meant God was there. I meant the presence of God was there. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So there you go. But Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now one of these is not like the other. It is not, it's not far-fetched to go, okay, we built a place for God to dwell with us. So his glory is filling it. Great, awesome. But we did that and now Moses can't even enter it? Then what was the point in building the tabernacle? Why build the tabernacle if our leader, our pastor, if, if, if Moses, if we can't even enter the tabernacle, what is the issue? It's one word, sin. Sin was the issue. And contrary to popular belief today, sin is an issue. Sin is an issue. Sin is not just an issue in the church and in the world. The sin is an issue for you. Sin is an issue for me. Isaiah says it like this. Sin builds a wall between us and God. Which means sin separates us from God. Sin is an issue. So why wasn't a, uh, Moses able to enter the tabernacle? Because his glory was there. Why couldn't Moses go there? Because Moses is still an unholy man. Moses is still a human. Moses is not worthy to be in the presence of God. Because sin is an issue. Sin is a problem. Sin we can't do. So how do we get to the place to where we can enter the tent of meeting when the glory of God is in it? Welcome to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is basically Exodus part 2. It's the sequel of Exodus. It's the second part of the episode. Who wrote who wrote Leviticus? Well, 
Before we know who wrote it, we have to know who inspired it. I want you to know this verse so well by the end of this series that you can repeat it off the top of your head. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Here's what we have to remember. Man wrote the Bible. Man wrote it. Over 40 different authors in three different continents in, in, in multiple languages. All these things are taking place. And it all has one common theme. Man wrote it, but God inspired it. We have to remember that. God inspired it. Doesn't matter what part of the Bible you're reading. Doesn't matter what book, what chapter, what verse. God inspired the Bible. And you have to know, we got to get outside of this mindset that our glimpse of life is where everything was meant for. It wasn't. The Bible wasn't written to you, but it was written for you. So there's things in there you have to dig through context and culture to figure out what it's actually saying, not even on the surface. Just at its depth because it was inspired by God. Who wrote Leviticus? Moses. Moses wrote Leviticus. We're now in the third book of the Torah, the Pentateuch, right? Moses is becoming quite an author. He's wrote Genesis, Exodus, and now Leviticus. He wrote, uh, he wrote Leviticus. Who did he write it? To Israel, the next generation. This is the same group of people as the previous two books. Now that's about to change as we move forward in this. But for now, it's the next generation. Why? To teach them their history. Because what? If we don't learn from our history, we're what? Bound to repeat it. We're bound to repeat it. The purpose of the book is the holiness of God and the power of sin. I believe this purpose is forgotten in today's world. I believe that we have forgotten that God is a holy God. How, well, why do you believe that? Because we don't treat God like he's a holy God. We treat him like he's a gumball machine. If I put a prayer in, turn the handle just the right way, sing the right song, feel the right goosebumps, then an answer comes out. That's not God. Christina Aguilera wrote a song about that called Genie in a Bottle, and that ain't God. It's the holiness. I know that was bad. The holiness of God. I'm not singing it. <laughs> Here's the reality. Watch this. When we see God as holy, worship is an opportunity. When we see God as holy... Worship is not about the song or the instruments or the lights or the screens. It's about declaring God's holiness. When we see God as holy and he inspired his word, his word is not just a historical document anymore. It is now the living word of God. There's something holy about it. When I see God as holy and I know how holy God is, when it says in Hebrews that I can enter the throne of God by the blood of Christ, then I know that I'm entering prayer. Prayer is an opportunity to enter the presence of a holy God, and there's something powerful to that. When God is holy, the church that he established in the book of Acts that lives today and you're sitting in and other people all across this world are sitting in today as we look at the book of Acts, uh, at the book of Acts and the establishment of the church, when we see God as holy, church isn't one of those things we just do. It's something we learn about the holiness of God in. You see how the reverence and the perspective of things shifts based on the way we see God. And the power of sin, I believe, is lost today, too, because sin is an issue. And I, I've heard people say, there is no, as long as Jesus died on the cross, there's no power in sin. That's a lie. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says it can have no victory over your life if your life is hidden in Christ. That's a big difference. There is power in sin. If you don't believe there's power in sin, go dabble in it for about two months and see how hard it is to get out. For real. There's power in sin. We're going to look at all that in the book of Leviticus. And it was written. Now, now here's the thing. Holiness of God. The word holy means set apart. And it's mentioned over a hundred times in the book. I think there's a common theme that God's trying to get us to pay attention to. That holiness matters. And it was written around 1446 B. See, now if you remember the timeline that I originally gave, started at creation, then around 2000 B.C., we started talking about Abram and the key player there. We're around 1500 B.C., talking about the life of Moses now on that timeline and what's happening. Now, the book of Exodus was all about getting Israel out of Egypt. 
It was all about getting the Israelites out of the Egyptian slavery that enslaved them. Remember, they went there. They went to Egypt because they were getting fed, but what fed them eventually enslaved them. Some of you need to understand that what's feeding you, if you're not careful, will enslave you. So it was all about how do we get out of Egypt? How do we get out of slavery? Leviticus. (laughs) Sorry, y'all. It was not professional. It was either chew it or choke. But so getting Israel out of Egypt, or in Leviticus, if it's part two, is getting Egypt out of Israel. Now, here's why that's important. Because while they were in Egypt, Egypt had a God for everything. A God for So there's one God of fertility, one God of money, one God of food, one God. So if you needed more food, you'd go pray to the God of food. If you needed more money, you'd go pray to the God for finances, all that stuff. Now they're coming out of that, and the God of Israel is one God in charge of everything. So their mindset, this is why the golden calf, this is why the golden calf was created. Because when it took too long, they needed a need met. And so all they knew was you create a God when you need a need met, and that God will answer your prayers. They didn't think the God is in charge of it all anyway. And so they've got to learn. Leviticus is about getting the Egyptian mindset, the slavery mindset, out of the free people of God known as the Israelites. Sounds a lot like us because here's why. For the Israelites, nothing was ever enough. Nothing. I've got it. It sounds a lot like us today. I got a great job. It's not enough money. I got food on my table. I need more. I got a car that drives. Give me a new one. I got a spouse, but she doesn't do what I want. Never enough. And can I tell you, a slavery mentality leads us to think there's never enough. And it causes us to become more and more enslaved. Why? Because we're always seeking something else. And because we want political freedom, we'll go to political gods. And because we want more money, we'll we'll create a god out of job and out of paychecks. Come on, y'all see where I'm at. And we got to learn God's going, I got to get you back out of this mindset. And so in Leviticus chapter 1, in verse 1, we got the temple. We're learning what Leviticus is all about. And we see now where the Lord calls to Moses, speaks to him from the tent of meeting. Moses was not in the tent. Moses was not in the tabernacle. It's the same as me sitting in my office calling you while you're at the restaurant. God is calling Moses from God is inside the tent. Moses is outside the tent. We have an issue that needs to be fixed. That issue is holiness. That issue is sin. To be set apart. So now the book of Leviticus becomes a book of instructions. And what do you do with instructions? If you're a man's man, you throw them in the trash. Right? That's a joke. How many times do we pull the instructions out and we're like, I'll figure it out. And then three hours later, you pull the instructions out and you're like, if I'd have just followed this, I'd have been done two and a half hours ago. It been so much easier. Or if you don't follow the instructions, you're like, I got 75 bolts left over. I hope this thing holds. <laughs> I put together my kid's swing set with my neighbor and my brother. And at the end of it, I was like, I don't know where these screws go, but hopefully it lasts. <laughs> Watch this. God's book of Leviticus is not about limiting our life. It's about instructing our life on what holiness would actually look like. Leviticus can be broken into two parts. Sacrifice and sanctification. It's really that simple. If you want to know what these are, write down these scriptures. Go look at them. Romans 12, 1 and 2 Timothy 2, 21 through 22. Sacrifice is about how do we worship God. How to worship God. The first part of Leviticus is all about sacrifice. It's all about sacrifice. We're going to get into both of these. Sanctification is the second part of Leviticus. It's how do we walk with God. Now watch this. I think it's interesting. I'm not trying to get into theological debates, and I don't want to. But when a lot of church people or theological people see sanctification, they think sanctification is an immediate uh, thing that takes place. Whenever you give your life to the Lord, you're immediately sanctified, filled, uh, purified, and filled with the Holy Ghost. Y'all ever heard that? Saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost. That, you know, and the reality is I believe part of that. But I believe sanctification is a process. Sanctification takes time, y'all. You didn't just wake up one morning and go, you know what, I'm going to jump into sin. 
And you're not going to wake up one morning and go, you know what I'm going to jump out of? Sin. It takes time to get through that stuff. It takes counseling. It takes, it takes frustration. and it take, That's called the journey of sanctification. That's why it's how do you walk with God? How do you walk with God? What does that look like? So let's talk about sacrifice. Let's talk about sacrifice for a minute. Sacrifice can starts in chapters 1 through 7, and it really answers the main theme, the main question of the book of Leviticus. It's a question that you've probably asked in some way, shape, or form. It's a question that you've probably felt the tension of. It's probably the question that somebody's asked you that you can't answer, and you don't know. You think you can, and you try, and you try to formulate, and maybe you do better than you think you do, but it's a question that we all wrestle with. How do unholy people approach a holy God? How does an unholy person? I don't know anybody in the room in here today that's holy. I know people in the room today that are good. I know people in the room today that are friends. I know people in the room today that are doing their best. I don't know any holy people in the room today. I don't know any perfect people in the room today. There's only one perfect person that's in the room. His name's Jesus. And his presence is here with us. But there's none of you are perfect. I'm not perfect. I sure ain't perfect. Right? And the reality is, you didn't have to amen that part. And the reality, I'm, just, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. Love you. How do we, as unholy people, approach a God that is perfect and loving and holy? What a task. And so that's where we come to the reality of sacrifice. Now, in Exodus, Moses is coming down from Mount Sinai. And as he's coming down from Mount Sinai, the, the Israelites see him coming down the mountain. And it says that his face is radiating from the presence of God that he was just in. And it says that the Israelites were terrified. Terrified. Why are they terrified? In fact, they were so terrified. Watch this. They were so terrified that Moses had to wear a veil over his face when he approached them and spoke to them. Because the presence of God was so strong on his life. Can I tell you something? That is my prayer for us. My prayer is that Christianity isn't a hobby. My prayer is that believing in God isn't a hobby. My prayer is that we don't just take an opportunity and go, you know what would be a good idea? To follow God. I don't want Christianity to be a good idea. I don't want sanctification to be a good idea. I don't want salvation to be a good idea. Man, I want us to be in such a meeting with God that before we ever approach somebody, they go, that person's different. There's something different about them. Yeah, you can clap for that. It's okay. I want you to be different. I want to be different. I want to be walking down the aisle in Food Lion or at the grocery store. Now, if I got my hat on, pulled down real low, and I'm looking down, y'all don't bother me. But any other time, I, w- <laughs> I want to be walking down that aisle and you go, that- somebody didn't even know me. They're different. Radiating because we're so much in the presence of God. And do you know why they were terrified? Because they realized we aren't worthy to be in his presence like that. You know what's so special about worship and prayer and church and, you know, all that stuff and the Holy Spirit with me? I'm not worthy to be in the presence of a mighty God like that. But by his son's sacrifice and the blood that he shed on that cross and by the love that God has for me and for you, we have that access. We have that ability. We have that opportunity to come into his presence. How do holy, unholy people approach a holy God? I can tell you it is intentional. It's intentional. It's on purpose. In fact, there's five offerings that are listed in chapters 1 through 5 of Leviticus that can be listed into two categories. And these five offerings are ways that you meet with God in that time. Now remember, the Bible wasn't written to you. You don't have to go home and do these five offerings because you've got to remember, Jesus wasn't around yet. Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. This is how they're meeting with God in this moment. This is how... Unholy people can meet a holy God. They had two categories of offerings, a thanks offering and atonement offerings. In Leviticus 2, you have the grain offerings. I'm just going to give a brief overview. You can go study them in depth and figure more of them out. So this is not complete. But the grain offering is basically when you wanted to talk to God and thank him for who he is and what he's done. It's no different than you coming to God and going, God, I just want to say thank you. I just want to say thank you for loving me, for pulling me out of hell. 
God, I just want to say thank you for my church and for my things. And I want to thank you for my life. And I want to thank you that you see something in me that I don't see in me. And God, I want to thank you that you love me when I'm unlovable. And God, I want to thank you that you love my neighbor when they drive me nuts. And God, I want to thank It's the same thing as going, God, I just want to get in your presence and say thank you. That was the grain offering in Leviticus 2. You see the fellowship offering or the peace offering in Leviticus 3. Sorry. Leviticus 3, it's similar to what we'll talk about in a moment called the burnt offering. But part of uh, the offering was given to God, part was given to the priest, and part was taken home with you. So this one was, I'm in fellowship with God and others. It was a fellowship offering, a peace offering. God, thank you for the fellowship we have with you. God, thank you for that, right? So they're thanks offerings. Then you got atonement. Atonement is the price of sin, the price of the redemption of sin. Atonement, I'm atoning, I'm paying for something. In Leviticus 1, you see the burnt offering. The burnt offering is you bring an unblemished animal, you kill it, you burn it on the altar. Hence, burnt offering, about knocked that over, burnt offering, and you burn it on the offering, uh, on the altar. It was the representative or the representation of our sin being killed and burnt off before the Lord. Gruesome. Man, that's gruesome. That's crazy. Thank God for Jesus. Watch this. The unblemished lamb. An unblemished animal offering that shed his blood for us. You see where all this comes into play. Then in Leviticus 4, you have the sin offering. The sin offering is because sin is a big deal. Sin is a big deal. You have the sin offering. Um, you would kill a bull, and every part of the bull had a, had a part to play in the offering that represented your sin being cleansed by God. So you go and you take this bull and you'd kill it and you'd take every part of that bull and you'd sacrifice it on the altar and that would be representative of God forgiving you of your sins. Aren't you grateful we don't have to bring bulls into this place today? So I can just tell you leave your bull outside. It's okay, all right? So we... It's bad. It's a bad joke. It's a bad joke. Preacher joke, right? We're good. We're good. No, and so you had that. And then you got the guilt offering. So dumb. In Leviticus chapter 5, you got the guilt offering. Some of you still carry this too much. Some of you carry the guilt of what you have and haven't done in your life. And you need to offer it. You need to put it on the altar. You need to be like, God, you're in control anyway. The guilt offering was to bring a lamb to sacrifice on the altar. And I love the guilt offering. This is what I love about the guilt offering. It depended on the, on the sin that you had committed. And it depended on how much money you made and what you could afford. So like in there, it says you can bring a lamb, but if you can't afford a lamb, bring two turtle doves. If you can't afford that, bring two pigeons. If you can't afford that, bring a tenth of flour. In other words, don't feel guilty for what you can't bring. Find what you can and offer it to God. I love that part of that, that offering. It's just a little tidbit, a little thought in my mind. That's how my brain works. And here's the reality of why these offerings are important, because sin requires sacrifice. The redemption of sin requires sacrifice. I know, I know. Can I tell you something? That's why the New Testament over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, even the Old Testament talks about this, repent from your sins. Repenting does not mean I'm sorry. That's apology. Repenting doesn't mean, oh, my bad, God. My bad, God. Hey, God. I've heard people say this. Well, God, well, Jesus died on the cross for my sin, so if I do it, it's already covered. Yeah, uh, sin, redemption of sin requires sacrifice. Re, re, uh, uh, repentance means to turn away from. So when you repent, you're, really, you're literally sacrificing where you were going and what you were doing for a new way. If this is what I was doing and where I was going, and I'm really repenting, I will turn my back on that and go this way. Are you with me? Sin requires sacrifice. Hear me. Don't let anybody lead you to believe that you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, and God doesn't care. Because if it separates you from God, there's a sacrifice that needs to be made for it. Luckily, Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, but repentance is our sacrifice. 
Repentance and walking away from that is our sacrifice. And God does care, and we're actually about to look at that as we look at the priest's responsibilities in chapters 8 through 10. God cares about the details. God cares about the intentionality. God cares about what's happening. Why are the priest's responsibilities important? If you read this in Leviticus and you don't understand this part, you'll just be like, I don't know, what does this matter? This is a bunch of stuff. Like, I don't, I don't understand. Well, the reality is this matters because somebody has to be at the altar to perform the offerings, to perform the sacrifices. Not just anybody was allowed at the altar. And so the priest had to be there. And if you remember back in Exodus, God looked and he said, the Levites are now in charge of that tabernacle. Why? Because they pledged their allegiance to God. The Levites were in charge. You know who was a Levite? Good old executive pastor Aaron, who said, I threw it in the fire and this happened. Now Aaron is a priest of the tabernacle. Don't tell me God can't use broken people. Don't tell me God can't use people that's done things wrong in their life. Aaron and his sons are now the priests in the tabernacle, leading the offerings and the sacrifices that all of us would be bringing to God in that moment. He's leading them, and he's giving them all these specifics, and God's going, here's how you need to live, and here's how you need to do this, and here's how this offering needs to be done. And watch this story. This is crazy. Verses 1 through 3 of Leviticus 10. Now, Nadab and Abide, that's how I'm going to say it, the sons of Aaron took their respective fire pans, And after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered a strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. It's important to know, because watch what happens next. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. How dare God would kill somebody when they're just trying to provide an offering? That's rude. Does that seem right? Here's why. God speaks to Moses, and Moses says to Aaron, this, it is what the Lord spoke. In other words, this is what God's saying to you, Aaron, because Aaron just watched his sons die. By those who come near to me, I will be treated as holy. Y'all getting the warning here. And before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. God cares about the details. God cares about the details. Why did he kill them? Because they had specific instructions on what to do and what not to do, and they chose willfully to walk away from it. We have specific instructions on what to do and what not to do, and how often do we willfully walk away from it. God cares about the worship we give. God cares about the life we live. A godly life and godly worship is birthed out of godly obedience. I know. You're like, yeah, that just, that's rough. Thank God for Jesus. And remember, God is what? First. Every time. And when he gives specifics, it's our job to follow them, not to make them what we want because it's God's preference over mine. This is why I can't stand when people go, well, that's just not the way that I think it should be. When we put our preference over God's, that's when we start taking Scripture and picking and choosing what we want to follow. Well, that's not, that's not what he meant. No, that's exactly what he meant. Well, I don't like that. Doesn't matter. He didn't ask your opinion. Come on, let's be real. He didn't look at me like, watch this. I'm a pastor. I'm ordained. I have a degree I study theology, I pastor about eight to 800 people plus at this church, 1,500 to 2,000 with you online, like tons, right? We're growing, all this stuff. Did you know that 2 Timothy tells me that my job, I am held to a higher standard than you are? God judges me different than he judges you. And so the decisions I make, the things I say, All those things have a higher weight on me than they do for you. I carry a weight that you'll never experience because of the role that I'm in and I chose to walk in God's calling. And so the moment I say, nah, I don't want to, I don't get to say so. Are you following me? I don't get to say so. When it's my preference over God's, I will pick and choose the severity of it all. But when it's God's preference over mine, it doesn't matter. As long as he says it, we're doing it. 
As long as he says it, we're doing it. It's God's preference over mine every single time. It's got to be about God's preference and God's presence over mine. Every second of the day. That's how we have a radiant face. That's how we get in the presence of God. And then we get to chapters 11 through 27 where there's holiness instructions. And we've already talked about how the word holy is mentioned over a hundred times in the book of Leviticus. And holy equals set apart. Watch this. Over the next several chapters, there's 613 laws and instructions given to Moses to follow. And if we look at that on the surface, we can go, God only cares about what I do. God only cares about limiting my life. God's trying to suppress what I can do. Don't despise the moments where God is trying to chisel off the areas of your life that look like everybody else's. Because what God's trying to do is get people that claim allegiance to him to look different from everybody else. And chiseling hurts. And chiseling is painful. And chiseling is frustrating. God's not trying to limit our life. God's trying to give us life. I have three kids, 12, 9, <laughs> and 5. My boys just had birthdays at the same time. My daughter's in September. I couldn't remember if she had a birthday or not yet. 12, 9, and 5. And when all of them were babies, there is a section of cabinets right underneath my sink. And none of them could open that section. All the other cabinets didn't have cabinet locks on them. That cabinet did. You know why? There's dishwasher packs under there. There's, there's cleaning solution under there. There's all kinds of like things that have poison and chemicals that can be harmful to all of us, right? It can be harmful. And I didn't want my son or my daughter to open that unknowingly, pour out a drink, drink it, put a dishwasher pack in their mouth, right? They even know when they do the dishes now, there's certain things in there that you don't mess with. Like they understand now. You, they have the entire house to themselves, my five-year-old rides his scooter through our house 24 hours a day. For real. Our house ain't that big. They can play in their room. They can bring their toys wherever they want as long as they put them up. Our house is full go except that cabinet. Now, would you look at me and say I'm trying to limit their life? Or would you look at me and, try to, and say you're trying to preserve their life? Because what's in the cabinet could kill them. When we look at this the wrong way, we go, God's trying, to, God's trying to limit my life. No, he's not. He's trying to protect it. He's trying to give you life. Because what's behind that locked door that you don't need to see, and he's been telling you on the inside what's on that website that you don't need to be looking at, what's in, in behind that bottle that you don't, all that stuff that you don't need to be around because God's telling you, yeah, but they can, doesn't matter. It's about you. What is God telling you to stay away from because it could kill you? God's trying to preserve your life. And in the book of Leviticus, when he gives us laws and instructions for holiness, God's trying to chisel off the areas of our life that look like everybody else's so that we don't look like everybody else. Because he wants us to look like him. Throughout this part, there's three types of laws. You see it throughout the whole book. But really in this section, there's uh, moral, civil, and ceremonial laws. Moral laws are for everybody. Whether you follow God or don't follow God. They're for all people at all times based on the character of God. It includes like the Ten Commandments, uh, commandments in the New Testament, all that stuff. Watch this. This does not, being a moral person doesn't send you to heaven. It makes you a good person. And can we all just agree we all need to be good people? No matter where you are with God, just be a good person people want to be around. That's what this does. It doesn't save you. It doesn't make you a follower of God, and it sure don't send you to heaven. But it can, a lot of morality is based in belief in God. Because God, it's based on God's character. you got moral laws. Then you got civil laws. Civil laws that have to do with fights and disputes and how you reconcile that and how you figure that stuff out. And a lot of the civil laws were dissolved with the Jewish civil government when that was dissolved. You can learn a lot of moral laws from civil laws, like don't murder people. I would, that's a civil law, but it's good morality too, right? Let's just not do that. Things like that. Be a person of integrity. 
all those kinds of things. Now, then you have ceremonial laws. Now, most of Leviticus is, a, is ceremonial laws. Here's why ceremonial laws are important. They were really for priests. Remember, the Bible was not written to you, but it was written for you. Ceremonial laws were for priests for their purity in the duty that they had to lead people into the presence of God. It was for guidelines, it was guidelines for cleanliness, festivals, diets. It was guidelines for priesthood. It was so much in the ceremonial laws. Why do ceremonial laws matter? Holiness matters. In the ceremonial laws were the ceremonies of how we become holy. And if we can grab this scripture, this is the anchor of Leviticus. Thus, you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy. And I have what? Set you apart from the peoples to be mine. I love that. This is Leviticus. God never intended you to look like everybody else. When you live your life for God and everybody else agrees on something and you can't and you get canceled over it, you weren't supposed to look like them anyway. You weren't supposed to believe like them anyway. They're not our enemy, but we don't look like them and believe like them and act like them. Why? You are to be holy to me. For I, the Lord, am holy. You go through chapters 11. Chapter 11 talks about diet. Y'all go read that one. It talks about guidelines of diet. It talks about chapter 12, guidelines of motherhood and purification after childbirth. And then it goes into leprosy and skin disease and, and keeps going. It talks about cleansing after bodily discharge. Yes, that's a chapter in the Bible. Um, immoral sex. Why you should not do that. Who you can and can't sleep with. Chapter 19 is like our catch-all drawer that we have in our kitchen. It's, it's miscellaneous things. Chapter 21 is the priesthood rule. rules. Priests, pastors, and leaders in the church are held to a higher standard. That was spelled out. And then chapter 23 is the last stop where I'm going to end it. Last stop in Leviticus. And it talks about the seven feasts. Now... I'm not diving into these. I'm giving you a brief overview of them. They are very interesting to go learn. I don't think your salvation relies on doing them, but I think there's a lot that your salvation can connect with in some of these. And so I would, I would encourage you to go read them. And, and the Passover feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, Weeks and Pentecost, uh, Trumpets, Day of Atonement, or the Two Goats or Scapegoats um, Feast, and the Tabernacles Feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. Go read about them. They're, they're super interesting to learn. Why does all this matter? Eh, there's a good reason. Living for God looks like something. There's one thing that I wish I could just tell everybody. Living for God looks like something. Our worship should look different. Our prayers should look different. Our Bible study should look different. Our relationships should look different different if I've given my life to God and I live for God why do I look like I used to look why do I look like everybody else living for God actually looks like something there's something on the other side of this and this is the approach to the question how does an unholy person approach a holy God intentionality Holiness, it looks like something. It matters. Watch this. In Leviticus 1, I'm going to go back. In Leviticus 1, where was Moses? Outside the tent, hearing from God. They go through the entire book of Leviticus. God's giving them the instructions. They're living them out. Numbers chapter 1, we'll get into numbers next time. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. Now Moses is in the tent with God. Why? Holiness works. Instruction works. It works! 
It looks like something. It gets us in his presence. It gets us with him. It gets us with him. Because sin requires sacrifice. God's preference is more important than mine. And living for God 100% looks like something. And if we follow God's instructions, we get in his presence. It draws us closer to him. Why? Because it's about him, not me. Because I'll give up what I need to give up to be with him. And my life now looks like that. And so here's what I'd love to do. I just want to pray. I want to pray over you today. That we would go out and we'd live it out. We'd live it out. Our faces would radiate from being with God. But here's what I want to ask. If you're ready in the room and you're like, listen i got to give my life to Jesus, like for real, for real. i got to give him everything. i got to sacrifice my life for his redemption. I I realize now, that looks like something. I can't allow you to leave the room without giving you the opportunity to accept him. So I just want to pray with you real quick. If you would, bow your heads. And if you're ready to give Jesus your life today, I just want you to repeat this after me. Dear God. I give you my life. Thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus that paid for the redemption of my sin. I give you my past, my present, and my future. And I ask that you take it, forgive it, and redeem it. I want to live with you forever. I want to live with you starting now. I sacrifice myself for you. It's your way, God. Thank you, Jesus, for sacrificing your life for me. And thank you, God, for loving me enough to give me room in the family of God. With every head bowed, if you prayed that prayer, and you gave your life to Jesus today, and you you believe Jesus died for your sins and you're ready to live for him, Would you just hold your hand up right where you are and say, I gave my life to Jesus. I prayed that prayer, and I gave him all that I have. I want to walk this out with you. I want to give you some resources. We want to pray with you. We want to answer any questions you have. If you're online and you prayed that prayer, there should be some prompts coming up on the screen that show you exactly what to do to let us know because we want to walk it out with you. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for loving us like you do. Thank you for giving us this life. Thank you for giving us your, your son, Jesus. Thank you for giving us holiness and instruction. We love you. We honor you.